A fourth person has died in China from a new virus that has spread rapidly across the country. Now, the virus first appeared in Wuhan in December from... Now to another grim milestone, the world surpassing one million deaths from the coronavirus. Scientists have repeatedly warned it could be many months before we know if any of the 30 or so coronavirus vaccines currently undergoing trials are effective. Some good news from Pfizer tonight. They're now reporting their vaccine is even more effective than first thought. Final results showing their vaccine 95% effective, and they now expect to ask for emergency use authorization by Friday. The United Kingdom has become the first major Western country to approve the use of the COVID-19 vaccine from Pfizer and BioNTech. Hi, I'm Sarani Fernando and welcome to the COVAX Files. First of all, you're probably thinking, who the hell am I and why should you listen to me on yet another podcast about the bloody coronavirus? What could I possibly tell you or do differently to all the other slick podcasters out there? Well, I ask myself the same questions and have to remind myself of all the people who asked me to do this podcast. So I've been an investigative journalist now for over a decade, specifically probing the pharmaceutical industry. I have a science background and have spent the large majority of my career investigating clinical trials. Before that, I actually worked in the clinical trials industry, so I've been on the inside and on the outside, and I've seen a lot. All I can say is that this drug development world is super complicated and nothing is ever as it seems. It's a world of brilliant breakthroughs, genius scientists, and a whole heap of hope for the future. But it's also a world of blindsiding efficacy twists, statistical conundrums, unexpected side effects, and manufacturing mishaps. Watching this vaccine race from the sidelines has been like I've taken some sort of hallucinogen. Sometimes I just don't really believe what I'm seeing. In a lot of ways, it's definitely exciting to see such huge progress being made in the vaccine field, but I've been primed to always keep my devil's advocate hat on, so I have a lot of questions that just haven't been answered by mainstream media. So I'm embarking on this journey to get some answers for not only myself, but anyone else who wants them, because what I do know is that this pandemic isn't going anywhere, and no matter what our opinions are, we're all going to probably have to make that decision on taking a vaccine soon. This is not an industry-sponsored podcast and I don't have any allegiances, so you can be assured that this podcast will be completely unbiased and it's up to you to draw your own conclusions. I'll be speaking to a lot of industry experts during this podcast, but first up, I thought we'd hear from the person who asked me to do this podcast in the first place. Hey, Ken. It's Ronnie. That's Ken Collier. He's the CEO of a company called Reorg, a financial news platform that I briefly worked for before COVID kind of messed that up. That's a long story, but when I decided to go freelance, Ken approached me to create a podcast digging deeper into all the issues surrounding a COVID vaccine and was willing to independently finance it. So here we are. Okay, so you approached me to do this podcast a few months ago, and a lot has happened since then. Why did you think a podcast like this was needed? There is a tremendous amount of COVID and coronavirus news and information on mainstream media. And it feels like that goes not even an inch deep. And on the other side, you have medical journals, which most 
I would say business professionals or professionals in general can't really ascertain. And so I found this massive void in the middle where I was looking for more information, but couldn't actually get it or couldn't actually understand it, frankly. So every day on the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg or the New York Times or Washington Post, on the front page, there is COVID news or coronavirus vaccine news, whatever you get your media, it's the same information sort of regurgitated around so many different times. A lot of people know that the Pfizer vaccine um, or the Moderna vaccine has a 90% efficacy rate as reported, because that was sort of talked about many different times in all those variety of mediums. But I remember when Pfizer came out with their first efficacy study, there was concerns around it had it been peer reviewed, okay? I'm not, I can't read the medical research on either of the vaccines. Neither can you. But there's a lot of people that can. And there's a lot of people that can sort of span the broad-based media and those medical journals and bring that down to a level that I think people that want more information can, can actually get it. And so what have you been struggling with the most in terms of the current information that you're sort of consuming? And what do you hope that this podcast is going to answer? You know, there's more than 8 billion people on earth. And so, you know, the, the story is not just the race to vaccine and the efficacy of the vaccines and the viability of the vaccines, but also how everyone on earth is going to get the vaccine. So I don't even think we're, we're not in the first inning, right? We're not even at the ball field right now. The level of information going from sort of the first inning to the ninth inning is, is void at best. And, you know, you could read some of the more established medical trade publications or, for example, cell-side research reports to get a little bit further. But at the end of the day, having a number of experts talk about everything from viability to distribution to manufacturing to logistics is going to paint a better picture for someone that wants to be more informed. And I really think that's what people are going to be talking about for the foreseeable future. I mean, people are going to go to cocktail parties and the, the standing question is going to be, Do, did you get the COVID vaccine? And there's going to be some people that said yes, some people that say no, and some people that are waiting or whatever it might be. What if it turns out that these vaccines only are effective for three to six months, but there are long-term effects? I don't know that. I don't think anybody knows that right now. And that is sort of deeply concerning to me. Whenever there's a lack of information, there's fear, right? And I think that's justifiable. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm with you on that. I mean, I'm not an anti-vaxxer by any means, and I believe in the science of immunization. I've had all the vaccines, but I also believe that we need the full span of evidence, the efficacy, the durability, you know, the safety that we, we won't have now and we won't have it until we've seen how it works for months and years. But yeah, I'm hoping that the conversations that I'm going to have with experts will give me more clarity on that as well, because at the end of the day, we're in a unique situation and we have to make some exceptions. And I think that it's going to have to be a you know, team effort if, if the vaccine is going to have any chance. We're obviously very excited to have you sort of leading the ship. And the real story for the next couple of years is going to be around getting this vaccine and getting the world vaccinated. You know, that story is not going away tomorrow. And I think there's lots of threads to pull to give people more information. And I think at the end of the day, we're gonna be scratching the surface of information. I'm really, really excited to see where this goes.
In this first episode, we're going to ease into the discussion by getting an overview of the history of vaccine development and the lead contenders in the COVID-19 vaccine race. We'll also try and get a bit more context on how COVID-19 compares to SARS in 2003 and the seasonal flu. But first up, let's refresh ourselves on where we've come with vaccine development and where we're at now. Vaccines are are actually one of the oldest medical interventions that survives. That's Dr. Michael Carilla, who is the director at the National Center for Advancing Translational Science at the U.S. NIH. He has decades of experience studying infectious diseases and vaccines, and he's currently a member on the FDA Advisory Committee. You know, we were doing vaccinations at the time when we were still doing leeches. (laughs) 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 If you stop and think about it... (laughs) The history of vaccine use dates back to the year 1000 in Asia. But in the late 1700s, an English doctor named Edward Jenner made a vaccine breakthrough. In what seems like an ethically questionable experiment, he infected a young boy with cowpox material and then exposed him to smallpox to test him for immunity. Well, the rest is literally vaccine history, which includes the eradication of smallpox 200 years later. That was based on literally on technology that was over 100 years old. Mm-hmm. One of the things I think that, that people need to keep in mind is that there is a continual evolution and refinement of the way we approach things. You know, we have evolved the way we do clinical trials, the sophistication, the, obviously the patient safety has really advanced considerably. The modern modern era of vaccines really began with Louis Pasteur, but we had vaccines in the early part of the 20th century routinely. The work of French scientist Louis Pasteur in the late 1800s gave us two big breakthroughs in the type of vaccines that are still used today. They are the live attenuated vaccine, which is a weakened version of a live virus, and the inactivated vaccine, which gives us a dead virus. The measles, mumps and rubella, or MMR vaccine, is an example of a live attenuated vaccine, while the rabies vaccine is an inactivated vaccine. And now, a lot of recently approved vaccines take a specific part of the germ or virus, like a specific protein or a capsid, and these are known as either subunit, recombinant, or conjugate vaccines. You might be familiar with these if you've ever had the meningococcal vaccine, the HPV vaccine, or hepatitis B. The leaders in the COVID-19 vaccine race all involve new, never-before-approved vaccine technologies. Those are the messenger RNA vaccines and the adenoviral vector vaccines. mRNA vaccines involve the delivery of genetic coding that instructs the body to mount an immune response to the virus, while the viral vector method uses a harmless virus to deliver genetic material that similarly instructs the body to build antibodies to the virus. Both of them are essentially delivering the genetic code of the spike protein found on the virus. Companies like Moderna and BioNTech and Pfizer are in the lead with their mRNA vaccines that have emergency use authorizations, which could lead to widespread approvals in 2021. Other companies like CureVax and Sanofi are also developing similar versions. 
Meanwhile, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson are in the late-stage trials for their adenoviral vector vaccines, while Chinese company CanSino Biologics and the Russian Gamaleya Institute have these viral vector vaccines already approved for early and limited use. If you check out the New York Times vaccine tracker, there is a great summary of all the vaccines in the race. And as of December 2020, there were 63 vaccines being tested in human clinical trials. Along with the mRNA vaccines and the adenoviral vector vaccines, you also have the DNA vaccines, protein subunit vaccines, and the inactivated viral vaccines, all earlier in the development stages. Now, these could be equally or even more important as we look to end the pandemic with as many weapons as possible. But they also could have more challenges as both the virus and the vaccine field evolves. We're going to hash more into these options later in the series, but with so many vaccines in the race and so many different approaches, we often find ourselves in a big black hole of confusion trying to understand the pros and cons of each and which ones we would prefer to take. Some of us prefer to take the older methods because they've been tried and tested, while others are interested in the newer and faster and possibly improved technologies. I went and talked to fellow Australian, Professor Nikolai Petrovsky at Flinders University, who has spent the last 20 or so years researching infectious diseases and vaccine development. Everyone sort of knows vaccines to a certain extent, and they've all like had a vaccine, they trust them. But should we be looking to one modality as, you know, being a better vaccine than the other? So I think it's too early to even comment on is one platform better than the other because we we haven't actually seen all of the outcome data yet, Mm -hmm. both short-term, which we have a little bit of, but particularly long-term, we have nothing. So the longest any of these vaccines have been in the clinic is like three or four months. So it's way too early to start calling and saying, look, you know, this technology definitely should be the only one we should be backing. So I I think they're all a bit different. I think we have to try and have as many different approaches for the, at least for the short term. I think in the longer term, when we look back in three or four years, that would be the time to be answering the question of, well, what technology really was the best technology that we should use for the next pandemic? Right. Okay. Because in this pandemic, most of these technologies have never been used before. So, you know, the mRNA has never been used before. The adenoviruses have never been used before. So, you know, the only one really that's been used before is the recombinant proteins have been used and also the inactivated whole virus that the Chinese have been pursuing has been used before. But really they're the only two that, you know, which we have past experience. So so I Mm -hmm. think, yes, let, let them all have their day and see how they perform. We're going to hash out a lot of the detail and dive deeper into the world of these vaccines in later episodes. We'll go through their clinical trials, any recent results, and try and figure out what we do know, what we don't know, and what we won't know about these technologies. So stay tuned. If you take yourselves back to your pre-COVID life in January 2020, what seems like a lifetime ago, You'll probably remember hearing some rumblings about the virus in China. You were most likely concerned, but were pretty confident it was their problem and not yours. 
We've seen this before, right? SARS in 2003, MERS in 2012, or even Ebola in 2014. It always seems scary at the start, but then it just disappears. Well, a lot of us were just wrong. When all of this was going on, there were a lot of people comparing this virus to SARS in 2003. The killer bug is now striking the front line of defence. Doctors, nurses and healthcare workers now make up a quarter of all victims. And SARS is becoming more aggressive. The number of victims expected to triple within weeks. So to refresh yourselves on what exactly went down with SARS, after being discovered in Asia in February 2003, it spread to 29 countries, including North America, South America and Europe. It was officially stopped in July 2003 after clocking 8,096 cases and 774 deaths. That virus was named SARS-CoV because it is a coronavirus that causes severe acute respiratory syndrome. What we have now is called SARS-CoV-2 because it's a lot like that virus, it's just the second version we've seen. But why is the second chapter so, so different? I think the nature of the threat has been a surprise. That was Dr. Gregory Gray, an epidemiologist at the Duke Global Health Institute. His work on infectious diseases spans 25 years, and he was also on the FDA advisory committee between 2010 and 2013. We certainly knew about SARS and MERS, but we didn't anticipate a very highly transmissible virus becoming a pandemic virus so quickly. So it's unique features of high transmission, subclinical spread have surprised us and frankly circumvented our public health programs. We didn't actually need to have this. If we treated it like SARS and with the rigor that we attacked SARS to stop its spread, I suspect this would have been eradicated and we wouldn't actually have COVID in the human population just as we don't currently have SARS in the human population. What was the difference then? I know that the case fatality rate was a lot higher, but I guess it wasn't as virulent and it didn't spread as fast. But what did we do wrong this time? Well, SARS was, you know, almost as virulent, but it had a very high mortality rate, you know, over 10%. By case fatality rate, we're talking about how many people have died in proportion to those infected. Right now, it's a bit of a moving target for COVID-19, but it has a case fatality rate of around 2 to 3%, and the first SARS virus killed around 11% of people it infected. So everyone was terrified, and, and so, you know, there was a lot more effort put in from day one, like from the first 10 or 20 cases, you had a few doctors dying and nurses in the hospitals. I mean, you know, everyone went ballistic in order to control it at that stage when, you know, it was just in the hundreds to thousands of cases and it didn't go to most countries. But the fact that SARS in 2003 was contained and didn't turn into a pandemic, vaccine development did begin back then, and there were a number of candidates being developed, but nothing ended up materialising. Just to sort of, I guess, remind us of what happened with SARS, there were vaccines that were being developed for that, but then they stopped. What sort of happened there? Well, you know, we, we have this tendency in um, human public health to respond to whatever the threat is and and basically aggressively 
pursue interventions. And then when that threat seems to be weakened, we, we then take the funding away. But that work with SARS and MERS, whatever work was done on the vaccine front, that was able to be like picked back up again and, and taken on? Yeah, some of the coronavirus work with SARS was foundational for the SARS-CoV-2, this virus in COVID-19. And so that was very, very useful. Some of the same researchers, in fact, have contributed basic science knowledge in understanding the immunology, the pathology of the viruses. And Dr. Gray mentioned funding, and that is probably the biggest game changer when you hear about vaccine development timelines being sped up for COVID-19. A lot of the risk has been taken out of this for companies to move full steam ahead with not only development, but also premature manufacturing. And they're able to cut all the bureaucracy and waiting times to get decisions made from the regulators. So government funding initiatives like Operation Warp Speed in the US have been instrumental in vaccine development and the results unfolding at record speeds right now. Now we're solidly on the footing with respect to a number of it looks like efficacious vaccines. And those have also been developed and tested in, in record timing. And so in many ways, our ability to respond is better than it's ever been before. I was hearing and still am hearing a lot of parallels being made between the flu and COVID-19. So I wanted to understand from the experts how we should think about the flu when trying to get some context around our current situation with trying to combat COVID-19 with a vaccine. So, you know, it's a new virus that humans haven't dealt with before. And we know, you know, from, say, you know, the 1918 influenza virus that caused the Spanish flu is still with us today. It's the H1N1 that, you know, we have today. It's mutated a lot over the last hundred years, but it, it, it still kills people every year. Now, you know, it killed 50 to 200 million in the first two to three years. But even with vaccines, you know, it still kills people around the world every year. So, you know, COVID is most likely to, to end up similarly something that we'll never completely eradicate now, but that we'll manage and then, you know, periodically, like flu, it will flare up and cause problems. I asked Dr. Carilla why we only take one single dose of the flu vaccine when a lot of these coronavirus vaccines involve two shots, the prime and then the boost a few weeks later. Almost everyone, 99% of the population, has prior flu immunity. You've been exposed to flu your entire life, every season after season after season. So you have a sort of inherent baseline immunity. And the new vaccine is a single dose, even though it's an inactivated vaccine, and just sort of pumps you up relative to the new strains that are circulating. But you're not naive. In the case of coronas, this particular corona, the human population started out relatively naive. Now, there's still a lot of ongoing investigation going on because there does seem to be some degree of cross-reactivity with some of the endemic circulating coronas. If you recall, a lot of the common colds that we have each season are also coronaviruses. They just don't cause those troubling respiratory symptoms that COVID-19 does. But 
we don't, we're not in a position at this point to really assess how much protection that really mediates. You'll see in a small percentage of cases, some people after the prime end up with a really high response. Now, it may be that they have some pre-existing cross-reactive immunity to coronas that is being activated that, they, that provide protection. It may be that they had COVID infection, but they had a mild or asymptomatic case and was never recognized. We just don't know at this point. It's so early in this pandemic relative to the type of detailed information mm -hmm. that we've acquired on so many other types of infectious diseases that we've literally had decades to study. We shouldn't be thinking in terms of a vaccine, you know, is just going to solve the whole problem. So if you're listening to this podcast, the biggest question you probably have is, when can this vaccine essentially bring our lives back to normal? That's the billion dollar question, right? Now, this is the first episode, and I expect to provide some better context for you throughout the series so that you can generate your own conclusions on that. But here's the first early impression on how this is going to pan out. I think, I, I, I don't see a tremendous reduction in the social distancing and the mask wearing, for, you know, for at least, you know, six to nine months. It'll all depend on the rates. We'll have to be very vigilant with respect to how many people are getting sick and gradually bring back social creatures. You know, I think what, what many of us are hoping is that this virus, once we have achieved some level of herd immunity, whether that's by natural infection, which I would never advocate. It's going to happen one way or the other, but but I wouldn't advocate it as a, as a strategic policy to go right. after it that way. Yeah. But, but if we were to have herd immunity, then what presumably would happen is that we would convert this ideally to something that would be more akin to what we see with the endemic circulating coronas that we're all used to. They come back every year. Mm -hmm. People get you know, upper respiratory infections, they get a little sick. It probably does cause more severe disease in the elderly, but it's at the level of flu or less at that time. The vaccine would help us get there a lot quicker, but we're nowhere near that situation and, and uh, people shouldn't be counting on that. So, Thanks for joining me on the first episode of The COVAX Files. Thanks to my guests, Dr. Michael Carilla, Dr. Nikolai Petrovsky, and Dr. Gregory Gray for breaking away from their busy schedules to talk to me. I'm truly grateful, and we'll hear more from them along with other experts throughout the series. Next episode, we're going to explore the world of clinical trials, the red tape around them, and regulators that approve the drugs. This is a complicated world of assumption, statistics, and a lot of room for error. There is a reason trials are conducted over 10 to 15 years before a drug or vaccine makes it onto the market. But how is it that we've been able to somehow overcome these lengthy timelines? Have these trials been designed effectively to show us what we want these vaccines to ultimately do? That and more on my next episode. So see you next time on The Kovacs Files.